Well, that was just a little uh, advertisement for our teaching series we're doing here at Bethel Church, just dealing with uh, some of the questions of life and the struggles of life. Next week is uh, about when life feels like war. Ever have those times inside? It's just like there's war going on. That's what next week's about. So we're going to be seeing what God's Word has to say about it. Love to have you come back for it. But today's Easter. So guess what we're going to talk about? <laughs> In case you were wondering, we're going to talk about the resurrection. And, you know, one of the interesting things I think about Easter in our culture is that, you know, there's obviously a lot of hoopla about it, especially in sort of quasi-Christian circles. And uh, a lot of people get fired up about it, and, right, and rightly so. But there are a lot of people who don't actually know the backstory behind it. Like, what happened. I've met people that have told me they grew up in the Midwest. They grew up, you know, kind of mid-America. And Easter was a great holiday off, day off from school or whatever. But they, nobody ever told them what happened. And then there's an even smaller percentage of people that actually know what Easter means. So today what I'm going to do is simply tell the story of Easter and then talk about what it actually means. And I, I just want to put your minds at rest. You, you maybe are here uh, and you're doing somebody a favor by coming today. Grandma, wife, whoever it might be. And uh, I, I, you're sort of like leery about what this whole thing's all about. I want to put your mind at rest and just tell you up front, my goal today is to convince you to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Okay? That's my goal. You don't have to wonder. I'm not hiding anything at all. Okay? <laughs> So just being up front with that. And I'm basically doing what one of the guys that actually saw Jesus resurrected himself did. He wrote an entire account of Jesus' life. He was there at the, at the resurrection. He saw Jesus resurrected, and he writes about that. And he gets to the end of, of uh, his account, and he says this. This is John. I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Apostle John, Pastor Steve, goal is the same here, okay? That you might have life by believing in Jesus' name. That's what I hope for. But we want to tell the story. What really happened that Easter morning? And we're going to pick up the story now from a different disciple. This is uh, Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. Matthew was a part of what happened at the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew was in the upper room when Jesus was resurrected. So this is a guy who writes as an eyewitness. And maybe right away there, there's something that you didn't realize. That the Christian claims about the resurrection are not based on some vision or some sort of religious uh, dream or fancy. These are based on the writings of eyewitness accounts, the kinds of accounts that stand up in court, the, the, the kinds of thing when somebody says, I was there, I saw it, convinces you that something happened. Christianity is not making primarily a religious claim on Easter. It's making an historical one. This is a moment in time, something that happened. Eyewitness account telling that it, that it did. One proof that uh, it actually happened is that those that were there completely didn't expect it. You know, if you read the story and they're all like, oh, yeah, there's sort of this group think 
that Jesus is going to be resurrected from the dead, you could sort of think, well, there are like a lot of cults and others that sort of got caught up in it and they believed it to happen when it actually didn't. Nobody expected it to happen. Matthew tells us that Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, was telling them this is exactly what's going to happen. To give you one example, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The disciples heard Jesus talking about being killed and being raised to life and they just were not putting two and two together. It didn't make sense to them. And we know that it didn't make sense to them in the way that the the whole thing played out. Because on Thursday night of the Passion Week of Jesus, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are with him. Here comes Judas. Here comes the religious leaders. Here comes the Roman soldiers. Here comes the mob to arrest Jesus. Now, if the disciples had been putting two and two together and kind of were expecting this whole thing, you could hear them saying to one another, hey, hey, here they come. Just like Jesus said, let's... Steady, boys. Let's just watch this play out. He's going to be resurrected. Don't worry about it. But they didn't do that, did they? What did the disciples do when the mob showed up? They ran like schoolgirls, didn't they? So we know from that they weren't expecting. They weren't expecting some resurrection. Who would ever expect something like that? In fact, Judaism at the time, resurrection or a personal resurrection was not... That wasn't even part of the whole paradigm. They thought there was a resurrection someday at the end of time. You know, everybody's resurrected, that kind of a resurrection. But a resurrection that happened for one person on a particular day, not even part of the, of the whole faith structure that they, that they have. Are we really so different, though? I mean, honestly, when was the last time that you attended a, a funeral and peeked into the casket and thought, maybe he'll get up? We don't think that way either, do we? Death is to us a kind of finality. There's a sense that this, you know, this is, this is it. We don't expect a resurrection and the disciples certainly didn't expect a resurrection either. So what really happened? Let's uh, get into the story here and the essentials of the story begin on Friday. Jesus is arrested on Thursday night. There is a kind of We'll call it a kangaroo court that is set up to try him. The whole thing's a charade. They accuse him of sedition against Rome. Now, the irony of that is the very people that accused him of sedition against Rome were the people that hated the Romans in the first place and wanted them out. And they accused Jesus of sedition against Rome. The whole thing is a farce from the beginning. Pilate, the Roman uh, governor, knows the whole thing is ridiculous, washes his hands of it, literally, and... Uh, says to the crowd who is shouting, crucify him, crucify him, chooses the politically expeditious route. Now, we're unaccustomed here in Lake County of politicians making choices based upon political expediency. Apparently, you're all from Porter County. Uh, He was a politician. The crowd pressure on him. You're no friend of Caesar, And he bowed to it and he said, okay, you can crucify him. And so they took Jesus away. They beat him. They flogged him. They took him outside the city to a hill called Golgotha. And there on that hill, 
the Roman soldiers crucified Jesus. They drove nails into his hands, wrists really, his feet, dropped that cross into the hole and stepped back to watch him die. The Romans, you know, some people might think Jesus was like the only person the Romans ever crucified. Actually, they crucified tens of thousands of people. And they were terrifyingly good at crucifixion. So the crucifixion of Jesus is not unique because it's a crucifixion. What is absolutely unique is the person they crucified. This Jesus of Nazareth, the most unique life that has ever been lived. We could begin with just his miracles, okay? The miracles of Jesus. And we're not talking with these miracles like the guys you see on TV. They're like, you know, the elephant's here, the elephant's gone. You know, kind of magic tricks, little sort of trickery, this or that sleight of hand. We're talking about uh, in the first century, calming a storm, calming the sea, the kind of power that takes bread and feeds five to 10,000 people with just a few loaves of bread, the kind of power that sees a widow whose, whose child has died, raises the child back to life, the kind of power that stands at the grave of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth, and the man who's been dead a few days comes walking out of the grave. When they start doing that kind of stuff on TV, now we start watching, right? Why? Because there's no natural explanation for it. When we see somebody doing some kind of a thing like that, you know that there's some kind of a trick to it. Jesus did miracles for which there were no tricks. There's no explanation other than divine power has come to the world. And that miraculous life, that life of power is combined with the most remarkable life of love and compassion that the world has ever seen. And those two don't normally go together, right? When somebody rises to significance, they become famous, they, they do this or that. Typically now there's a sort of elitism that comes upon them. But Jesus is the opposite of that. He becomes the most famous man in the whole country, but at the same time, the most remarkable life of compassion that has ever been lived. You know the kind of people that Jesus had a heart for? It was the, it was the, the people that everybody else rejected, right? The marginalized in society. We're talking about the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those that have been burned by religion. These are the people that Jesus is drawn to, and those are the kind of people that are drawn to Jesus. He cared for them. He loved them. He would uh, uh, minister to their needs. He would teach them truths that would uh, uh, help them through their life and give them hope in the next. This remarkable, I mean, Jesus' life, you read the stories, it's the most remarkable life that has ever been lived. It's like he's from another world. Which, of course, he is. The angel said to Mary, you are going to have, your child is going to be the son of the most high God. This life, how do you explain the life of Jesus? It's like he's from another world. In fact, try this, go home and make a list and just sort of imagine if God actually showed up here, what kinds of things would you expect would happen? If God came to earth, make your list of all the things that you think would happen. And I would dare say, if you put the list next to what happened when Jesus showed up, they're going to be almost exactly the same. And that is the point. This Jesus of Nazareth was not just any other man crucified by the Romans. This is the most unique individual who has ever lived. He is, in the Christian claim, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, dying on this cross. In fact, 
Here's part of the, uh, the irony of all of this. You have the Pharisees and you have the Romans who are threatened by him. They don't know what to do with him. The only thing they can think to do with him is to kill him. And so they have all of their treachery and all of their sort of plotting and their planning and Judas being a part of that. And all of that, including the cross and the death of Jesus, fulfilling exactly the mission for which Jesus came. Why did Jesus come into this world? Here's what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that's really good news for sinners, isn't it? Am I talking to any today? We're a whole room full of sinners here. And the thought that maybe God came here to save us from our guilt and our sins and the punishment that accompany them by God himself, this is really wonderful news. So let's get back to what happened, okay? So he dies on Friday. There is a leader that was secretly a follower of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea who goes to Pilate and says, can I have the body? Pilate says, I got to verify that he's dead. Remember, these are some of the best executioners in in all of antiquity, right? The Romans. He verifies from the guard who was responsible for the killing of Jesus that indeed Jesus is dead. Pilate says, you can have his body. Joseph Arimathea, another religious leader named Nicodemus, some of Jesus' followers, specifically some women, all are a part of the taking down of his body. And they take him to a garden nearby where there's a tomb that nobody's ever been laid in before. They prepare his body according to the Jewish custom, which was to wrap it in linen. They had little spices and uh, things like that that they would put in the little, between the linens that was part of their tradition. And they bury Jesus in that tomb by six o'clock. Passover began at six. So Friday night, six o'clock, Jesus now laying in that tomb. These disciples back to their house. The Pharisees celebrating somewhere. Satan celebrating somewhere. Friday night passes, Saturday morning comes. Saturday afternoon passes, Saturday night passes. First dawn, Sunday morning. Matthew picks up the story now in Matthew 28. Here is what happened, what really happened on Easter. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. All the Gospels begin their account the same. Women going to the tomb. Matthew here identifies two of them. First of all, he says, Mary Magdalene was going to the tomb. And this is the famous Mary Magdalene. If you've been around Christianity, you've probably heard about Mary Magdalene. This was a woman that grew up by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus actually healed her, and she became one of his most devoted followers. He was her rabbi and teacher, and uh, she's the famous Mary Magdalene. She was there at the cross. She helped in the burial. Mary Magdalene. And then the text says there was the other Mary. I'm wondering if she liked that distinction myself. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. You're going to meet her in heaven. And Are you Mary Magdalene? No, I'm the other Mary. (laughs) The less known Mary. But she is part of this story. She is there at the tomb. Chapter 27 mentions her. And she's part of this uh, group, too, that Matthew highlights that are going to the grave. Now, we can ask the question, why are they going to Jesus' grave? He's already dead. He's already buried. What's the point? 
Well, one of the Gospels says that actually there were a few things that are part of their embalming process that they had not completed because they had to bury him in a fairly quick fashion. So they were going to complete that process. But I think underlying that is what every person who's ever loved a, lost a loved one knows. There is something about going to the grave of a loved one that feels like ongoing relationship, that it feels somehow intimate, right? And so people go to the graves of their loved ones. And these women were very devoted followers of Jesus. They had grieved all Passover, all Sabbath, anticipating the opportunity to go back and just to be near to his grave. So these women, these two women, they're part of the team that had buried Jesus. Now they are making their way back to the tomb. By the way, one of the theories about that try to explain away the resurrection is that the women got confused and they went back to the wrong tomb. You know, they just kind of lost their way and they arrived at a tomb that was empty and they sort of imagined then the resurrection from the dead and the whole thing's, you know, a, a, a farce. That's the theory. Now to explain that though, it's really relatively easy, right? Because here you have two women who had been a part of it. One maybe could have been confused, both a little less likely, right? But even if both of them had been confused, let's just say that they had. What happens after they make this declaration that Jesus is alive? Is it possible that all of the Pharisees, all of the Romans, the thousands of curious Jews after that declaration who went to see it for themselves, all of those thousands of people, they also all went to the wrong tomb? Very unlikely, right? Because after Christianity begins and it's spreading through the Roman Empire, what, what would they simply have had to do in order for the whole thing to collapse? Bring out the corpse of Jesus. Look, here he is. He's still dead. And then what happens to Christianity? Away it goes. And you're not here on Easter morning. If only they could show the body. Uh, But they couldn't for reasons we're going to get into. The women were at the right tomb. So as they're nearing the tomb now, we pick up the text, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Here in Northwest Indiana, we don't know what that looks like, do we? No. We come to find out that God likes to do two things when big things happen. He likes earthquakes. Good Friday, when Jesus died, what happened? The earth shook. The power of God saying to mankind, something big just happened, right? Here we have another earthquake, a great earthquake, the text says. God also likes to send angels to make announcements when something really big is happening. Do you remember what happened when Mary, there's Mary, right? The Nazareth, all of a sudden an angel appears to her and says, you, though you are a virgin, you are going to be the mother of the Messiah, the, the, the son of the most high God. An angel told her that. What did God do when uh, Jesus was born? Who showed up? Angels showed up. They filled the sky singing glory to God in the highest and all of that. So God likes earthquakes. God likes angels. And we have both of those happening here in this moment. There is a great earthquake that takes place. And the text says that an angel comes 
removes the stone in front of the tomb, and he sits on it. His appearance is like lightning and very white snow. This is a human being trying to describe what the glory of God looks like. This angel is is emanating, reflecting the glory of God, and it looks like a lightning flash. Now you might say, that ain't no big deal. I'm not that impressed. Well, notice what happens to the guards. And for fear of him, the one angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They say, what guards is he talking about? I didn't know about guards. Here's what happened. On Saturday, the day before, might have been Friday, we don't know for sure, but the Pharisees had gone to, Rome, uh, to, the, to, the, to Pilate and said, hey, this guy said he was going to be raised on the third day. And if the, if the disciples come and steal the body, this whole thing is going to be worse than we had on the first place. Pilate says, make it as secure as you want. And so they went, they sealed the tomb, and they set a guard, a Roman guard, at the tomb. Now, I imagine if it's me, and I'm in, here's the guy that's been the thorn in my side for all these years. We finally have killed him. We're so glad. We don't want this whole thing to be carried on anymore. And the, the Romans said we can take any guard and soldiers we want and to make this thing secure. If I'm in charge of that, who am I selecting to guard the tomb? Is it the, is it the, the first uh, week pledges at boot camp, Roman boot camp? No. I'm picking SEAL Team 6, right? I'm bringing in the best, the baddest, the meanest cusses in the entire army. I'm putting them around that grave. And those are the guys that are standing there. The angel shows up. And the meanest, the toughest, what I call them, cusses in the army. What, are they, what happens to them at the sight of one angel? Down they go. They are trembling. They are comatose at the sight. They don't know what to make of it. But the angel said to the women... Do not be afraid. Notice he doesn't say that to the soldiers because they needed to be afraid. But he says to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Remember. Jews in the first century didn't conceive of the concept of a resurrection, not a personal one, not a one that happens today. These women standing there, the earth shakes, they see the angel, the the stone is away, and the news that he has to share is so out of their paradigm. Imagine them processing this. Risen from the, what did he say? Women, some, they process information in community with one another, right? So you can see this happening, can't you? These what he said, risen from the what resurrection, and just the whole dawning of what happened. Amazing, amazing. There was a large stone over the entrance to the to the grave. This angel, knowing that these women were going to have a hard time does something to help them. He rolls the stone away, kind of throws it out of, out of the way. Now, why did, why did the angel do that? Some people might say, maybe especially children, so Jesus could get out. I'm thinking if an angel can roll the stone away, this, it's no big deal for the Son of God, right? 
So I don't think the angel was doing Jesus a favor, opening the door for him. Um, It's not so much so that Jesus can get out, but so that all of humanity could get in and to see that he isn't there. And the angel invites the women. You laid him here Friday. You know exactly where he was. Come and see. He is not here. He is risen. This most amazing news. He says, go tell the disciples. The disciples are back in the city, back in Jerusalem, probably in the upper room. So look what happens. Here's this now single most greatest moment in their life. So the women, they depart quickly, no doubt quickly, from the tomb with fear and great joy. I love that little phrase. Fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I have to tell you, that gets me every single time I read it. Why? If you're Jesus, okay, you have just conquered sin, dying on the cross in obedience to the Father. You have just spent however long in heaven declaring your victory. You've declared victory in heaven. You've declared victory in Hades itself. You have had angels showering you with praise. God the Father has just reunited who you are with your body and resurrected you from the dead, conquering death itself. And here now you are having your very first encounter with people that loved you and followed you and believed in you. What do you say in that moment? Very first words after resurrection. If it's me, I'm like, victory, right? I did it! Jesus says, good morning. (laughs) And all the scholars agree the word that is there is the plain old normal word that you say when you meet your neighbor walking to get your mail. It's just the plain old, how you doing? I don't get that. I honestly don't understand that. Maybe I'll get to ask Jesus someday, like, why did you decide to say that? But my sense of it is there was such a confidence and such a... uh, What's the word? Like he, he knew this was going to happen. And now he's on the other side of it. And he's just, I don't know if he's relaxed. I don't know what it is, but he's just like, great to see you. Great to see you. Notice what the women do. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Let's ask the question, why did Jesus appear to these women? Did he have to do that? I mean, they already had their sort of message to go. They knew what they were supposed to say. Why does Jesus appear to them? Let's think about this a moment. Let's just say that he hadn't appeared. And these women, they run to the upper room. There's the disciples. They burst into the room and they say, the stone is rolled away and Jesus' body isn't there. What do the disciples think? Grave robbers. Somebody went and robbed the grave. And that was actually a fairly common thing to happen back in the day. If you've studied the pharaohs and all of that, the grave robbers, they go in, they steal, and they take things. And here you have the most famous person in all the land, a pretty good target for a grave robber to go in and to take his body and whatever else they can find. They would have thought, oh, grave robber. They would have been upset. But hey, it happens. What if they would have said, we went to the tomb and we saw an angel, and the angel said that he was resurrected from the dead. What do the disciples say? What time did you start drinking this morning? 
right? But when they say, we went to the tomb, there was an angel. His body isn't there. The angel said he's resurrected from the dead. And we have just seen him, spoken with him, worshipped him. He told us to come and tell you. Now there's a whole sense of believability about this, isn't there? And another gospel tells us, even with that, the disciples couldn't believe it. It was so out of their paradigm that this would happen. And Peter and John, the story goes now, Peter and John run to the tomb. And they're there, they look in, his body's not there, they go home, they don't know what to think. There's two disciples that are on the road to a city called Emmaus. Jesus comes up to them, they don't realize it's him. He gives them a a, a little lecture, he breaks bread with them, Reveals who he is to them, disappears, they jump up, they go racing back to the upper room. Mary Magdalene has her own encounter with Jesus. Everybody's gathering back at the upper room saying, I saw him and he said this and he said that and this was what's going on. People are like, that can't be true, no way. And the text tells us that all of a sudden, bam, Jesus is standing in the midst of them. You want to talk about an astonished moment. Wow. Right? And he says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. What is that all about? Jesus stands in the midst of them, and he knows this is out of their sort of paradigm of belief. And so he says to them, come and see the scars in my hands and my feet. Now, what is that? The crucifixion just two days before. There, those scars where the nail had gone in, they were healed, but they were still, they were still there. If you see somebody's got a big scar, you know, up, up their knee, what do you, you, what do you look at? You say, oh, knee replacement, right? Or you see a scar somewhere else and you think, oh, that's what that means. What did the scars of Jesus mean? Crucified. Jesus wants them to realize, I am the same person. This is the same flesh and blood body that you saw die on that cross. And then he says, you got any fish? (laughs) And he eats the fish. And the Gospels record that Jesus ate the fish. What's that about? Have you ever seen ghosts do this? And it disappears. It doesn't fall to the floor, right? I am flesh and blood. Come and see. It is me. I am alive. And that's the story of Easter. And I told you at the beginning, I just want to tell you the story, and then I want to talk about what it means. And I want to talk about what it means by talking about what it doesn't mean. What the resurrection doesn't mean. And I have three things it doesn't mean. Here's the first. It doesn't mean that Jesus was a fraud. It doesn't mean that Jesus was a fraud. 
If Jesus was a fraud and all of his miracles were magic tricks, and all, what happens to all his claims to be the Son of God? What happens to all of the radical teaching, the things that he said? What happens to all of that? It all disappears, doesn't it? It all collapses if he is not resurrected from the dead. Why? Because where do we find Jesus? He is right where all the other liars and charlatans and religious people that said this or that, where are all of they today? They are all dead in the grave. You can go see their tombs. You can go and visit the tombs of the founders of the other major religions of the world. There's probably a carnival cruise line. You can get a package deal. Let's go see the founder of this religion. And now we're going to go and see the grave of this religion. And they're all there. They're all dead in the grave. But with Christianity and with Jesus, the founder of our faith, you can't find him. There's no grave in which he can be found. And that reality of the resurrection says something about everything that Jesus said he was and everything that he did. What? It authenticates, it validates that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that his teaching is absolutely true. Even the radical statements that he made, like this one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is either the statement of a lunatic, or if the guy's resurrected from the dead... A truth that will save a sinner from his sins. I am the only way. It is a claim to exclusivity, isn't it? He isn't there saying, hey, find your own path. It's all good. Seek light wherever you find it. He is saying there is one way to God the Father, and it is through me. And the resurrection from the dead validates that. To ask the question, hey, who, what are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? What's the religion that you, that you want to believe? For me? The guy that says, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected on the third day, and is, my money's on him. My money is on him, and my faith is in him as well. It validates the claims of Jesus. It validates his life. If Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it means that he is not a fraud. The second thing the resurrection doesn't mean is that God hates sinners. God hates sinners. I've been learning a lot about love in my life. Some of the, or the, all the regular sort of Bethelonians here know this part of my story. Um, I pastored this church for many, many years as a single man. I called myself the bachelor pastor. And uh, that whole time, I had the joy of being an uncle. I had nieces and nephews, and they were special to me, and I was able to invest in their life. And I was a youth pastor for five years, and, you know, we have children and young people here. So I, I had the opportunity to have a close-up perspective on parental love and to see it, you know. But I always kind of wondered, and if you're single here, I'm, I can, maybe you can relate to this, I just kind of wondered, like, what is that actually like? And I would see the extraordinary lengths that parents would go to for their kids. And I would think to myself, I don't know if I got that in me, right? (laughs) We draw the line here somewhere, don't we? Well, in God's good plan, 
he brought a wonderful woman into my life when I was 44 years old. I got married when I was 44, and I became a dad of a daughter when I was 45. And I'm here to tell you, I get it. I get the parental love thing. I have such, now I have such a love for my wife, and I, I hasten to that because she's sitting here in the front row. But to talk about parental love and the love that I have for that little girl, it is in a different category, but it is as intense a love as I have for anything or anybody in this world. I love that little girl. There isn't anything that I wouldn't do for her. Well, then you have a a child and you realize it's one thing to say that, right? Being a parent forces you to do what with your love? You got to put it in action, right? All of a sudden you come home, here's this child and there's, and there's poop and there's uh, feedings and there's the schedule. And all of a sudden, you know, you're like, what about college? You know, saving for college. And what about plans? And, you know, she needs a room and she needs a crib. And she, you know, just all of a sudden this child like takes over your life. And you love it, right? You love it because you love that. I love that little girl so much. Between services, I ran back because I hadn't seen her in her Easter outfit. I wanted to see her in her her Easter dress. And she's just, you know, cutest kid in that whole children's department. (laughs) Got her looks from her mother. Working it. But it really boggles the mind how much a parent loves a child. Here's the interesting thing, though. For children, they can sometimes miss that, can't they? They can misunderstand parental love. They actually can think that it's hate. Right? No, you may not tattoo the name of your two-week boyfriend on your body anywhere. You hate me, don't you? You hate me. No, we love you. We've sustained your life all these years. Teenagers can mistake love for hate. And sinners can mistake God's love that way as well. Because a sinner can hear that God's holy, God's God who judges, punishes sin and could come to the conclusion God hates me God hates me and to miss the fact that this whole story is about divine love put into action this is God's love for sinners even in our sin and even in our rebellion God loves us. He sent his son into this world, and that son went through all that he did and dying on the cross for our sins, bearing our guilt, dying in our place, was dead that time and resurrected from the dead. All of that is about love. We can't look at this. We can probably, but we shouldn't look at what has happened here and to think somehow God doesn't love sinners. Jesus came because he does. He does. 
And it stands in all of history as the defining moment of God's divine love for you. Do you think God loves you? Do you think he cares about your eternity? Look to the cross and the resurrection. We, we serve a God that loves sinners. Here's the third thing that the resurrection doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we all go to hell. It doesn't mean we all go to hell. Here is the wonderful reality in the offer of God. Hell, the same Bible that talks about Jesus and resurrection and cross and all the other things, also talks about hell, and Jesus talked about hell. Hell is the place where God's holiness and justice is avenged. Hell is the absence of God. Hell is the absence of beauty. Hell is the absence of love. Hell is the absence of anything in this world that you like and think is good. There is none of that in hell. Heaven is the opposite of hell. Heaven is the place of God. Heaven is the place of glory and beauty and light. Heaven is uh, the place of fullness. It's the greatest human experience that we can have is, is heaven. Hell is worse than the worst human experience that we can have, and heaven is far better than the best human experience that we can have. And the resurrection is all about you. And which of those two eternal destinies lies before you? Why did Jesus come? He came into the world to save sinners. God loved the world and sent his son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, John three sixteen. And so Easter comes kind of crashing down upon the sinner. I can misinterpret it. I can say, God hates me. I can say Jesus was a fraud. But if Christ was resurrected from the dead, fulfilling the mission to come and to save sinners, it means God loves you. And there is a way for you to have your sins forgiven and your guilt taken away. And it comes down to whether I believe in Jesus or not. Can I acknowledge my sin before God? Can I believe that Jesus died for that sin and put all my hope and faith and trust in him? And can I begin then this new life? New life, that's what the Bible also calls it. Okay? To be saved, salvation, Christian salvation, is a new life. We celebrate that here. That's what our church is all about. All these people here experiencing new life in Jesus, by faith, in him dying on the cross and resurrected from the dead. So what about you, friend? What about you? Which will it be? You can say, this whole thing's a joke. I can't wait for this service to be done. Not if Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You can say, God hates me. My life stinks. Not if Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We're all going to hell anyway, aren't we? Not if Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And the whole point of the earthquake and the whole point of the stone being rolled away and the whole point of an angel and the whole point of an of a appearance to the women and the whole point of see my scars and the whole point of eating the fish. All of that is God communicating to us and to you 
that there is a way, there is a truth, and there is a life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. And I was praying yesterday about about our services, and it just dawned on me, God might right now be giving me the privilege of being the only person in your entire life telling you the message that defines your eternity. And it is not me. This is about the Lord. And what you believe. Will you believe in Christ as your risen Savior or not? God loves you, my friend. I urge you. I call you. I beg you. I'd I'd do jumping jacks up here if I thought somehow it would help convince you of the need that you have for a Savior. So what do you believe? What will your eternity be? He is not here. He is risen risen from the dead. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer?